series that is going to lead up uh, to the uh, Easter season, and uh, it's designed to provide you with a biblical perspective on some of society's most difficult and challenging issues. Over the next uh, month and a half, uh, we're going to seek to discover what God's Word has to say about divorce and remarriage, about racism, uh, racial reconciliation, suicide, uh, the exploitation of children, and transsexualism. Uh, how's that for a list? Uh, while brainstorming these topics, uh, Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo and I decided that if we are going to uh, engage in something where it's very likely that we're going to crash and burn, that we probably should go with the greatest fireball that we possibly can create. Uh, so uh, let the carnage begin. Uh, I want to start off uh, initially uh, with uh, explaining to you here and those who are at home uh, two things that, that we need to keep in mind over the course of these next uh, six weeks. The first is Living Water's statement of faith as it res, uh, speaks to or relates to the authority and sufficiency of God's word, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, our statement of faith, the very first statement in our statement of faith reads this, we believe that the scriptures of both the Old and New Testament are the inspired word of God, that they are inerrant in their original writings, and that they are the supreme and final authority of all Christian faith and life. And this uh, declaration, it finds its genesis in, in two uh, verses in particular. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then 2 Peter tells us, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy <coughs> was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And these verses tell us that the Bible provides us with all that we need to know, uh, not only for our salvation, but ultimately for trusting him and for obeying him in absolutely everything. Now, as such, when we are confronted with an issue, uh, be it societal or spiritual or relational or political or economic or such, uh, we can turn to God's word to discover how he wants us to think about it and what he also wants us to actually do about it. Now, that doesn't mean that God's word directly speaks to every issue that we will encounter. But it does mean that there are principles inside of God's word that we can apply to any and all issues that actually come our way. And it also means that whatever approach that we take regarding a particular issue, it must ultimately be submitted to the, the principles and the truths which are clearly articulated in God's word. And, and so when, when we come a, a, along a, 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 with an issue and society's perspective on that issue collides with God's perspective on that issue, God's perspective is the one that we are to embrace every single time. Now secondly, the second thing I want to focus your attention on here this, this morning is the 100% guarantee that we make here at Living Water. 
Uh, because in addition to, to reminding you about the sufficiency of Scripture, I want to point you to this guarantee. We articulated it on our website. We articulated it in our Discover classes. And it, there's two parts of it. The first is this, that we guarantee that there is a 100% chance that at least once, probably multiple times, you will be offended by someone or something here at Living Water. Or equally likely, you will be the one who does the offending. And I fall into that condition many, many times throughout the last 20 years of me pastoring living water, where uh, sometimes I offend without even knowing that I'm being offensive. Now, the second thing that we guarantee you, and that 100% guarantee is this, is that you will not like 100% of the things that, that happen here at living water. So if you have not been offended during your time here at living water, over the next six weeks, it's very possible that you will be. And the reason for this is simple. There are truths in God's word that are diametrically opposed to the popular teaching of our society. And if, if you or if I embrace what our society teaches us about topics that we're about to cover and, and we're unwilling to surrender those thoughts, those philosophies, those teachings to the authority and sufficiency of God's word, these next six weeks could be very difficult because the inescapable fact of Christianity is there are portions of God's word that people find offensive, even people who love Jesus. If you think about, about it, back in John chapter 6, uh, Jesus' own disciples were offended by him because he, he declared that he was the Son of God, and we're told that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And as a staff and leadership team, we realize that some of you will struggle with what's going to be taught over the next six weeks. And I want you to know up front, we're not doing this to be controversial. We're, we're not doing this to, to hurt people. We're not doing this because it's our desire to, to run some people out of living water, to have them turn off the, the live stream. We're doing this because we love you. And we're doing this because we want for you what the Apostle Paul wanted for his young protege, Timothy, for you to be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, one final thing before we get started, and, and we won't have this disclaimer before every one of them, just this one here. Uh, this will apply to the balance of the, the messages. But it's this. If you don't agree with what you hear, before you post your frustration on Facebook or you tweet your indignation on Twitter, or you start to express your outrage in email, I would humbly ask you to step away from your electronic device. And, and I would ask that, that you would fall on your knees and that you would, would plead with God to speak into your heart and for him to reveal truth to you. Don't, don't take what, what I'm about to say at face value. Test it. 
I, I am a fallen human being, just like every one of you. I mess things up as I do my studies. And so if something doesn't seem right, I would ask for you to test that. Test that against God's word. And, and after you do that, after you allow God's word to inform your, your opinion, if you still don't agree or if you still don't understand, or, or if you're still upset, I want you to come and I want you to talk to me or Pastor Ben or Mike Bongo or a member of our elder board in person or on Zoom. And when I say talk with us, I actually mean talk. You see, when it comes to controversy and conflict, uh, we don't do email. We don't do texting. We don't do carrier pigeons. We don't do skywriting. We do face-to-face. -face. We together, we, we gather up our courage. We, we, we put on our humility. And, and we meet face-to-face -face so that we can dialogue with one another real time, so that we can humbly search God's word together. And we do this, this hard and good work of, of seeking to find common ground uh, that's based upon humble submission to, to God's word and a love for others. And in the end, we may end up agreeing to disagree, but we did the hard work of getting there. So that's the disclaimer. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, get started. In the late summer, of 1979, at the age of 14, I stepped off of a large yellow school bus and walked through the front doors of Central Dolphin High School located on Locust Lane for the very first time. And it would be there that I found a group of wonderful friends. Kurt and John, and Chuck, and Susie, and Eileen, and Denise, and Danny. And for the next three years, we would learn together, we would study together, we would laugh together, we would eat together, we would go on all kinds of adventures together. And the eight of us, these, these four guys and these four girls, we. But we had a ton of stuff in common. It was wonderful because no one was dating one another and kind of messing the whole thing up or whatever. But, but we were all together, and it was beautiful and fun and exciting and wonderful because we had all these things in common. But there was one of our friends who was different, and that friend was Danny. Like the other girls in our group, Danny was beautiful. She was wildly intelligent. She ended up being the valedictorian of our, our class. She was fun and outgoing and kind, just like all the, the other girls that were in our group. But there was one thing about Danny that was different. And that was Danny's parents were divorced. During the week, she and her younger sister lived with her mom in a, in a small uh, two-bedroom apartment right near the Colonial Park Mall. 
And then every other weekend, uh, she and her sister would go to her dad's house uh, that was in this beautiful, sprawling house in Susquehanna Township where she would be with her dad and her stepmom and her two stepsisters along with herself and her sister. And Danny was the, the first person that I knew uh, whose parents were divorced. And I remember how incredibly difficult it was for Danny. Although her, her mom worked really, really hard, money was always tight in Danny's household. Her mom and her dad struggled to get along, and Danny always felt like she was drug into the middle of that, that she was kind of like a pawn uh, being pulled between two people. Her relationship with her, with her stepmom and her stepsisters was, was strained at best. Going back and forth on the weekends uh, to her dad's place was always hard. It always messed up the plans that, that we as a group had, had pulled together, and we had always had to alter them and try to make them work so that Danny would have time to spend with her dad. And undoubtedly, Danny faced countless other challenges that she never, ever told me about. And for as amazing as Danny was, there was this sadness about her that she did her very best to cover up, a sadness that only those who have experienced divorce firsthand can really actually understand. Now, surely you have heard the statistic that 50% that of marriages end in divorce. The other statistic that the divorce rate among Christians isn't any different than the divorce rate among non-Christians. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that both of those statistics are inaccurate. The 50% number simply compares uh, the number of marriages that happen to the number of divorces that occur over a given period of time, be it a year, be it five years, be it a decade. The only problem is that many of those folks who get divorced in that time frame, especially over the longer time frames, get divorced not once, but sometimes they get divorced twice or three times, and that skews the percentage. Let me explain. I wanted to, to actually do this with some little like figures up on the screen, but I didn't have enough time to pull that together. But, but let's just say that we have eight men who are married, and six of them never divorce. The other two men, they, they both marry and the divorce twice, two times each. So what we have is we have a, a total of 10 marriages, four of which end in divorce, which yields a 40% divorce rate. But in reality, we had eight men who were married, and only two of the eight ever get divorced, which means that 75% of all men who get married actually stay married. And that's exactly what the Harvard-trained researcher Shante Felden discovered in her book, The Good News About Marriage. Felden states this, according to one of the most recent Census Bureau surveys, 70% or 72% of people who have ever been married are still married to their first spouse. 
Now that changes the narrative. Rather than hanging our heads and saying that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, we can instead look people in the eye and say nearly 75% of all first-time marriages always last for a lifetime. Now the fact that a quarter of first-time marriages end in divorce is still way too high, but it's a lot better than 50%. And similarly, this statistic that declares that Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians is also fundamentally flawed. And the flaw is because there are many people who self-identify as Christians, yet they never go to church, they rarely pray, they rarely read their Bibles, they rarely practice any spiritual disciplines, much like people who buy gym memberships and never ever go to the gym. And in essence, these folks are no different than those who do not self-identify as a Christian. And when Felton took and only counted the people who, who actually identified as Christians who, who went to church and who prayed and who read the Bible and who, who executed spiritual disciplines, she found that the divorce rate of those folks is between 27 to 50% lower than those who don't go to church. But even with this amended information, divorce amongst Christians is still a major issue. It's an issue that brings pain not only to the man and woman in the midst of the divorce, but it brings pain to the kids that are in the divorce. It brings pain to the parents of those who are getting divorced, the brothers and sisters of those who are getting divorced, the friends of those who are getting divorced. And so what we need to do this morning is we need to understand what does God's word say about divorce? And perhaps the best place to start is with the, one of the most difficult verses to translate from the original Hebrew that is in the entirety of the Old Testament. It's Malachi 2.16. And because the Hebrew sentence structure of Malachi 2.16 is so complex, what scholars have done is they've landed on, on one of two different translations, and, and they've kind of staked their, their ground on those translations. The first translation that scholars have, have staked their ground on is found in the English Standard Version of the Bible, which we have here at Living Water. And this is what you'll find in your ESV Bibles. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirits and do not be faithless. Now I want you to notice that the subject of, of this sentence that has been translated is the man. And it focuses on the faithlessness of the man who ceases to love his wife and ultimately divorces her. Now the second translation is actually found in the footnote of your ESV Bible right there by Malachi 2.16. And Bibles like the ESV and the NIV and other uh, study-type Bibles trying to be faithful to God's Word, where, where there are questions about a translation, they'll put footnotes and, and they'll be very open about 
uh, what the difference in translation looks like. And this is how the footnote translation is in the ESV. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, in this particular way of translating the sentence, the, the subject no longer is the man, but the subject actually is God. And God is told to have a dual hatred. He has a hatred for divorce and for those who do violence. Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar. I had two semesters of Hebrew in seminary, which were absolutely the most excruciating thing that I have ever done in my life. I barely survived those classes, so uh, I cannot speak with any level of authority regarding the translational nuances that support that view, and as such, is I have to rely on commentaries that are written by guys who, who didn't study Hebrew for just two semesters in seminary, but who have poured their entire life into the Hebrew. People who are far more intelligent than I am, and based upon what I read from them is how I have to create my particular position. And from what I have read, and from what I have discovered, when I look at this particular passage in light of the balance of the teaching of divorce and remarriage in the scriptures, I find myself leaning towards the second translation, the footnoted version in the ESV. The translation that, that speaks to God actually hating divorce. And I do so because it seems to be consistent with the balance of the teachings of divorce in the, the Bible. Now, we need to be very careful here because the text is not saying that God hates the person who gets divorced. you got to burn that into your head right now. The text does not say that God hates the person who gets divorced. The text is saying that God hates the damage and the suffering that is always involved in divorce. He hates the act of what divorce does. It's the damage and suffering that, that my friend Danny experienced. And it's the damage and suffering that many people who are sitting in this room right now, and many people who are at home watching right now, have experienced. But Danny and many of you are not alone. You see, God understands the pain that comes through divorce because he has experienced divorce firsthand. In Jeremiah 3, we read this. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, that's the northern kingdom of the Jewish nation, I had sent her away, that's God, speaking with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah, this is the southern kingdom of the Jewish nation, did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. 
You see, in this passage, God is warning the southern kingdom of, of, of the Jews. He is telling them if they continue to rebel against him, if they continue to pursue false gods, he is going to do to them that which he did to the northern kingdom, and that's to give them away in divorce to turn them over to their sin, to allow them to, to go into captivity under the pagan nation of Assyria is who the northern kingdom went to. You see, God gets it. He knows the, the pain and the heartache and the rejection of divorce because he has experienced it firsthand. And if you have been divorced, or if you are a child of divorce, if you have walked with a loved one or friend as they navigate through divorce, then you know firsthand the damage and, and the suffering that comes with divorce. And so as we look at these passages, we need to read them from the perspective that God knows the pain and suffering that is involved and that his decrees and his instructions and his commands regarding Divorce, they're designed to protect us against the horrific consequences that ultimately come with divorce. Now, in order to fully understand God's perspective on divorce, you've got to understand what comes before divorce, and that's something called marriage. And we find God's perspective on marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis is the creation account of the universe. And throughout the entire creative process, God is constantly looking back and declaring that which he has created as being good. But there is only one thing that God has created that is not good, and that ultimately is the aloneness of man. So God does something very novel, something very creative, so, something designed to help the man understand that, that nothing in this world will ultimately fulfill him, satisfy him. And, and what he does is God parades the entirety of the living creation in front of man. From aardvarks to zebras. He, he shows Man, every animal. And what man discovers, which God has already known, man discovers that nothing in creation is going to fulfill this void in his life. There's nothing in creation that is going to, to ultimately be his helpmate. And so God does something wonderful. Genesis 2, 21 and following. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You see, God custom-created the woman, Eve, to be Adam's helpmate. 
And when Adam saw Eve, he knew that she was the one. In in the pronunciation of of the Hebrew, it's almost like, ah, this is it. You've driven me crazy, God, with all of these creatures, and now you have given me absolutely that which I need. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give Adam a helpmate. He binds the two of them together by creating this beautiful thing called marriage. Now, I want you to notice how marriage is supposed to work. The first thing that happens is that the man joyfully receives the provision of the woman that God has given him joyfully receives that which God has given him, recognizing that this person has been uniquely created to me to to uniquely meet my needs, for me to uniquely meet their needs, for for us to be helpmates and, and to work together in this world. And then once he receives her, the man leaves behind his past. That doesn't mean he kicks mom and dad to the curb. It doesn't mean he gets rid of brothers and sisters. But it means that his alliance has changed. His allegiance has changed. Now the the most important person in the man's life is no longer mom or dad, brother or sister, best friend or best girlfriend. It's this person that God has provided to me. And then he holds fast to his wife. The, the, the word there is actually being glued, being seared together so that when you break it apart, the glue is not what breaks, but actually part of the piece breaks. And the two then become one. It is not a legal contract, like the purchase of a car or a house where there's no relationship, where you really don't care about this person that you're dealing with right now. You just want their stuff. No, marriage is a covenant. It is a lifelong monogamous commitment built completely on relationship between a man and a woman and between God. And one of the primary reasons why divorce is so rampant in our culture is that people view marriage as a temporal contract rather than an eternal covenant. Perhaps you've been driving down the, the, the highways recently and, and you see that, that sign that shows the, the two wedding wings that's an, an advertisement for a divorce uh, lawyer. And what does it say? It says, oops. Like, I made a mistake. No big deal. I stubbed my toe. That's our society's view of marriage. It's oops. And what happens is many times we fall into that because we get so caught up in the present. We spend all of our time planning for a wedding that lasts an hour or two and not enough time at all planning for a marriage that's supposed to last a lifetime. And so we start getting caught up in diamond rings and engagement pictures and bridal showers and wedding plans and wedding venues and honeymoons and the like. 
And we become blinded by love. We become intoxicated by the prospect of sex. Some of us are simply tired of waiting. We're fearful of being alone. We're overly focused on others. And because all of that stuff is running in our minds, we don't consider that really there should be nothing that is going to cause me to leave this person. And as such, we're not all in for better or for worse in sickness and health or till death do us part. Now, it's not surprising that sin would come along and would wreck this beautiful thing that God created. And we see this destruction in both the Old Testament and we see this destruction in the New Testament. So let's look at the Old Testament first. Within the pages of the Old Testament, we find only one law governing divorce. It's Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and folks, this is a painful thing to read. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This passage, all by its little lonesome, shows us the horrific damage that sin inflicts to a marriage. It's a far cry from a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. What we're talking about here is indecency and hatred and rejection and defilement. Think about the very pain that is captured in those four verses. And I want you to listen very carefully here. It's important to understand that with this law, God is not condoning divorce or the exploitation of women. What he is doing is he is regulating divorce because marriage has been broken by sin. Listen to the words of pastor and author Esau Macaulay. Not every passage of the Torah, the Old Testament law, presents the ideal for human interactions. Instead, some passages accept the world as broken and try to limit the damage that we do to one another. 
This means that when we look at a passage in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves about their purpose. Do they present a picture of what God wanted us to be? Or do they seek to limit the damage arising from a broken world? You see, what God intended for you and I before sin entered the world was for marriage to be a lifelong covenant. And when sin showed up, it brought with it divorce and the exploitation of people, especially women. So what do we learn from this particular passage? First, God does not command divorce. Rather, because of sin, he makes allowance for divorce. Second, the allowance for divorce required that there be some type of indecency. And what that indecency looks like, the Bible does not tell us. Third, and this is important, when the first marriage ends in divorce, the woman is free according to the Old Testament law, to marry another man. This is important because the second marriage is not considered to be an adulterous relationship, but ultimately a legitimate marriage. And the fourth thing we see from this passage is when the second husband dies or divorces the woman, she may not remarry the first husband. Now, what is really interesting is how the Jewish scholars in the first century, while Jesus was alive, actually interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24. You see, there, there were the, at Jesus' day, there were these scholars, these Jewish scholars who studied the Torah and who interpreted the Torah and who gathered with them other people who followed their teaching. And there were two particular guys that were prominent. The first guy was by, by the name of Hillel, and he had something called the school of Hillel. And the second guy was a guy by the name of Shammai, who had a, a school called the, the school of Shammai. And these two schools, they rarely agreed with one another because Hillel was, was the liberal guy as far as theology was concerned, and Shammai was the conservative guy as far as theology was concerned. And it, it, what went on was a lot of infighting here, not different than what happens between the liberal arm of Christian churches and the conservative arm of Christian churches. And their disagreement is very evident when it came to interpreting Deuteronomy 24. Because the house of Shammai taught a man could not divorce his wife unless she was engaged in some type of sexual immorality. That was the conservative view. The liberal view, the house of Hillel taught this. A man could not divorce his wife, a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all, even if she spoiled his meal. Yeah, hmm. In the early days of our marriage, Kathy spoiled a lot of meals. She's very good cook now, but in the early days, oh my, the two of us together, no wonder we were so thin back in those days. 
Now, it's this controversy that's going on while Jesus is walking this earth that, that is actually the backdrop for, for the New Testament teaching on divorce. In the Gospels, we find only one instance where Jesus actually talks about divorce. It's in Matthew 19. There are two parallel passages that speak of the same instance in Mark 10 and Luke 16, but we're going to focus on Matthew 19. This is what we read. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That, that word, the very specific words there, that any cause. This is the conflict that's going on in that day between those two schools of thought. And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, before sin entered the world, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now notice the question that's asked here. The question is this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the question that's going on between these two schools of thought. And they've now brought it to Jesus as basically a trap for him. What is he going to say? Who is he going to side with? Jewish religious leaders want to know, is he going to support the conservative position of Shammai or the liberal position of Hillel? You and I know that this concept of divorce as no-fault divorce, which entered our society in the 70s and early 80s. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does here. Jesus is masterful. It helps being God, by the way. Jesus points them to God's standard for marriage. He points them to the, the couple becoming one flesh. He points them to what marriage was supposed to look like before sin actually came into the world. And then he says, after the fall, after sin came into the world, God makes provision for divorce. Why? Because people have hardened hearts. People are sinful. People use others and exploit others and abuse others. And it doesn't get any more abusive than a husband divorcing his wife simply because she can no longer meet his needs or because some other little pretty thing came along or because she burnt the spaghetti. This kind of treatment of women was especially cruel in Jesus' day in a completely male-dominated society where the divorced woman faced shame rejection, and almost every time, poverty. 
So what does Jesus say as it relates to this specific case of divorce, a divorce for any cause? Jesus takes the the liberal theological position that, that a Jewish man could kick his wife to the curb at any time, and he completely rejects it. He destroys it. And then he raises the bar crazy high. And he gives one of the valid grounds for divorce that we find in the New Testament. And it's called sexual immorality. The Greek word that is translated sexual immorality is pornea. It's where you get pornography from. And it is a very broad term that covers all kinds of illicit sexual activity. Adultery, prostitution, premarital sex, incest, same-sex relationships, bestiality, pornography. You see, pornea is more than just sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 10. I'll have it on the screen for you. This is the verse that comes right after everything that I read. The disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You see, Jesus' teaching on divorce, it blows the mind of his disciples. Why? Because they have been caught up in what society was teaching, that a guy could kick his wife to the curb for any reason at all. It had become so normal, so socially acceptable, that Jesus' disciples do what they do best. They overreact by saying, we shouldn't get married then if this is what's going to happen. And here's Jesus' point. Marriage is serious business. It should never, ever be entered into lightly. Because God designed marriage to be a lifelong, monogamous covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And one of the things that can legitimately break that covenant If you want to destroy your marriage, engage in sexual immorality. And God is so serious about marriage that he designed it, we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, to actually be a heavenly, uh, an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. That the marriage relationship between a man and a woman is very similar. It shows us the the love that God has for his church, the bride of Christ. So is it any wonder that God takes divorce seriously? But that's not the end of what the New Testament says about divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, weighs in and gives us a second valid reason for divorce. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. 
To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, I've got to clarify a couple things so that we can actually understand what God is trying to communicate through the writing of the Apostle Paul here. First, in this passage, Paul is speaking to a radically different group of people than who Jesus is speaking to. In Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders about the Jewish Old Testament law. It was an exclusively Jewish audience that he was communicating to, because that's who Jesus came to. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to a diverse group of Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and who were living in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. Now, not surprising, some of the, the people who were living in Corinth prior to becoming Christians, were married. So you had Jewish people who were married, who weren't Christians, and the Jewish woman comes to faith in Jesus, yet the Jewish man has not come to faith in Jesus. Or you have Gentile husband and wife, and the Gentile man comes to faith in Jesus, but the Gentile woman hasn't come to faith in Jesus, because they're already married. And so that's why Paul puts in all this stuff about unbelieving husbands and unbelieving wives. Second, when Paul says this statement, not I but the Lord, he is simply distinguishing between the things that Jesus said in the Gospels, which was actually oral history at Paul's time, they hadn't yet been written down, and the things that Paul is saying now. It's not that, that Paul is saying what I'm about to say is less authoritative than Jesus. Because everything that, that Paul has said, that he has written down, that we have in the Scriptures, has been done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is God's Word. Just as in the Gospels, the words that Jesus says and the words that were written down by the Gospel writers are God's Word. There's not, Jesus' red letters override other things in the Bible. They're the same level of, of authority. Third, in Matthew 19, Jesus' primary focus was on the husband divorcing the wife. Because in Jewish culture, that's how things happened. But notice here, Paul starts off by what? He's actually talking about the wife not separating, which is just another word for divorce, from the husband. And he's doing it because the culture in Corinth is actually different. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul reiterates what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Don't get divorced. That's what he's saying. And then in verses 12 to 14, he says this. 
and I paraphrase. If you were married prior to becoming a Christian, and then you become a Christian, and your spouse doesn't become a Christian, and your spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, then by all means, stay in the marriage. But then in verse 15, he deals with a non-Christian spouse who says, nope, I didn't sign up for this. You, you, you all of a sudden, you're worshiping God, and you're praying, you're reading the Bible, you're giving our money away. You know, no, I didn't sign up for that. You've got these standards that I don't, these standards don't fit with me. He says, I'm checking out. And this is what he says. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This one verse says a lot about divorce, specifically about valid divorces. The first thing that it says is obvious. If you're a Christian and your non-Christian spouse abandons you, whether they initiate a divorce or whether they simply leave, you are not only free to get divorced, you're free to marry again although only to another Christian as commanded in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about not being unequally yoked. And it says this, in such cases, the brother is not enslaved. The second thing is less obvious. What happens if you are a Christian and you are abandoned or divorced by a spouse who professes to be a Christian, but is not living a Christian life. Do you have to remain married? Do you have to stay in the marriage? This is where Jesus' teaching on church discipline in Matthew 18 comes in. The question becomes, is this person who says they're a Christian, but has abandoned his or her spouse, really a Christian, or are they a false convert? And the way that you discover whether they are really a Christian or whether they are a false convert is you engage in something called church discipline. This is what Matthew 18 says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take two, one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses and if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18 is all about reconciliation. That's what it's designed for. That's what church discipline is designed for. It's designed to take the wayward person to correct what they're doing and to restore them to the life of the church. But what happens if you go down that path? What happens if, if you go to, to your spouse who says they're a believer and, and you try to explain the things that are happening in, in your life 
and, and they're going on and the things that they're doing and they don't respond or they, they ignore you. And then what happens if, if you grab a couple other people and you bring them along so that they can see how you're lovingly trying to deal with this and nothing happens. And then you bring the church into the picture and the church tries to engage and the whole time he tells everyone to, to go and take a flying leap off of a, off of a cliff. What happens? You're called to treat that person like a, like a tax collector or a Gentile. In other words, treat them like they are an unbeliever. And so, in those cases where someone professes to be a Christian and is unrepentant, they are treated like a non-Christian. So let me summarize what we've learned so far and then address one final issue. According to Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, there are two valid reasons for a Christian to be divorced. One is sexual immorality on the part of one's spouse. Adultery, prostitution, incest, same-sex relationships, bestiality, addiction to pornography, and such. The second is the physical abandonment of the marriage by the unbelieving spouse or the spouse who proclaims to be a Christian who turns out really isn't a Christian. But the question becomes this. Is there any other valid reason for a Christian to get divorced? I believe that there is, and I believe that its grounds are found in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7. Let me read it to you again. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the plural is very important here, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God called you to peace. One of the challenges that pastors face when it comes to the issue of divorce is how do you help wives primarily and occasionally husbands when they find themselves physically, emotionally, or spiritually in an abusive and dangerous marriage? What do you do when the offending spouse hasn't committed adultery? What do you do when the offending spouse hasn't taken off and left them and abandoned the marriage? What do you do when a spouse is getting beat up or slapped around by a husband and wife whose anger is completely out of control? What do you do when someone is being constantly put down, belittled, intimidated, manipulated and threatened by one who stood before God, before her or him, their family and friends, and promised to love and cherish them. What do you do, pastor, about that? What do you do when marital intimacy is being used as a weapon, either by force or being withheld? What do you do when the wife 
of one of your friends who doesn't come here to living water comes and tells you that your friend, her husband, has raped her. What do you do, pastor? What do you do with a husband or wife who is addicted to drugs or alcohol or gambling or sex and the addiction is absolutely destroying the spouse and the kids and the person is not willing or to do anything about it? What do you do when all of the crying and the begging and the counseling and the intervention does not work? What do you do when someone finds themselves enslaved in a marriage? All of those things I just shared with you, if those walls in that corner office could talk, they would articulate every one of those. Let me tell you what you don't do. Let me tell you some of the things you don't say in these situations. Some of the things that I have been so stupid to have said in the past simply because I didn't know. You don't sit with someone who's going through those things and say you don't have any legitimate grounds for divorce. You don't tell them you need to hang in there, maybe something will change. You don't tell them you need to pray and persevere through this. Maybe he won't hit you so hard in the future. You don't tell them perhaps this is just your thorn in the flesh. You don't tell them, and thank the Lord I've never said anything this stupid. If only you'd be a better spouse, maybe they wouldn't be doing the things that they do. Or it could be worse. None of those responses are helpful. They're definitely not compassionate. And I would go as far as saying that those who say these things fail to understand what Paul is actually trying to say in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. And here's the critical three words. In such cases... The brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. You see, I don't believe that the Apostle Paul was limiting his teaching on divorce to the physical abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. I believe that he was using it as one example of how a spouse can be enslaved in a marriage. And the reason I believe it is that phrase, in such cases. You see, the abandonment of the unbelieving spouse is simply one of several cases that ultimately enslave someone in a marriage, hence the plural cases. Theologian Wayne Grudem has published an entire paper on that verse. He is wildly conservative in his theology. He's not part of progressive Christianity Wayne Grudem is crazy conservative. And I would be happy to share it with anyone who would like to see the details, but for sake of time, because we're already at 10.30, we're almost done, let me just briefly explain it. 
an unbelieving spouse could physically abandon the marriage and the one left behind wasn't free to divorce and ultimately not free to remarry, they would remain enslaved. So God makes a provision which allows a person who is abandoned to have the marriage ended in divorce. Of course, abandonment is just one way that someone can be enslaved in a marriage. And every one of the scenarios that I just articulated shows the very same thing. Physical, spiritual, emotional, and sexual abuse all serve to enslave someone in a marriage. And so does addiction that never, ever, ever, ever can get solved. Not that addiction can't get solved. I'm just saying there's sometimes that the addict just can't stop. You don't believe me? You ask people who are in that situation. There are people in this room right now who have been in those situations. Now, some of you will say that I'm making an argument from silence because Paul doesn't spell out abuse or addiction as valid grounds for divorce. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that God's word speaks loudly and repetitively about freeing people from abuse and bondage. Here's just a few of scores of verses in the Bible that speak to the heart of God on this matter. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the land, hand of the mighty, so that the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. The Lord, you hear the, O oh Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that a man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Who, who executes justice for the oppressed, speaking of God, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Could God be any clearer about his desire to free people from bondage and oppression and abuse? Now allow me to close with one final thought. Perhaps you're thinking that I have gone soft on divorce. That somehow opening up legitimate divorce beyond adultery and physical abandonment of an unbelieving spouse and making room for those who have been abused and enslaved in their marriage is some type of theological compromise. Perhaps you're thinking that, that I will have, it will be encouraging to wives and husbands to use these reasons to get divorced. I'm here to tell you that doesn't happen, especially for those husbands and wives who are serious about pleasing God. What I have seen over the last 20 years is that Christian and men, women and men who deeply love God and God's word, who find, who, when they find themselves in, in a destructive marriage with an abusive, angry, or addicted spouse, they are not quick to leave. They hang in there far too long at times. 
They allow too much abuse to, to happen to their kids and themselves. Why? Because they're trying to be faithful to God's word. Because they love God. Because they made a covenant before God of the universe. And they want to honor that covenant. They're not looking for an easy out. They slug it out every day trying. But at some point, the enslavement is too much. And divorce is the last thing that they want. They want to save their marriage. But a marriage always involves the commitment of two people. This teaching doesn't give them an easy way out because they are not looking for an easy way out. They want to stay the course. They want their marriage to work, but at some point, the other party is not willing to change, to repent, to get help. Then there needs to be a way that the wounded party can be freed from their enslavement. And I believe that God, in his great love and his mercy, has provided a way. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you now and... Uh, Lord, we confess to you that we are fallen, sinful people. You tell us in your word that we are hard-hearted. And God, it is my desire, and I know that it is the desire of those in this church family and those, Heavenly Father, uh, to, to, to be honoring your word, to do everything that you want, dear God. And I pray that you would help us in the midst of that. For those, Heavenly Father, who have, have gone through divorce and perhaps their, their divorce was valid, uh, biblically perhaps that it wasn't. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would rain your mercy and grace upon them, that they might know that, that, that there is no sin so grievous, no wound so deep that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his grace can't bring healing to. Father, for those who are in difficult and destructive and disappointing marriages right now, I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would seek hard after you Lord God, that they would pray for their spouse, that Lord God, that you would work in the life of their spouse, that there would be repentance and reconciliation and restoration, Heavenly Father. And Lord, for those who have to take the step of divorce, I pray, God, that you would guide their steps. And Lord, for those of us, the 75% of marriages that stand the test of time where we never, ever, ever take your goodness for granted. Thank you for the man or woman that you have placed in our lives. Lord, help us as men to, to love them as Christ loves the church and give ourselves up for them. Help them as women to be able to, to respect and, and submit to their husbands even at times when the husbands are not respectable. Lord, help us to, to work together to edify one another. Lord God, help this church to be a blessing in this community. We give this all to you now, and it's through your son's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen.